0: It is the Advent season. Advent is a Latin term. It means the coming. And so during this time of year as the church, we have an opportunity to prepare and rejoice and to worship in the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. But as we do this, there are um, pieces of this that we're going to be highlighting over the next four Sundays. And so, as a church, we're going to be talking about faith today. It's my joy to be able to preach on faith. But over the next three Sundays, we're going to have hope, love, and joy. And so, as a church, we're going to be focusing on the relational aspects of this Advent season. You see, as I introduced the idea of Advent, I talked about preparation because preparation is a vital piece of our relationship with Christ. And so as the church, we get to take a good, long, hard look at all of the aspects of his first coming, of his first advent, in the miraculous annunciation through Gabriel, in his miraculous conception through the Holy Spirit, in his miraculous birth through the Virgin Mary. And yet, even as we look at this with all of the excitement and the joy and the revelry that comes with Christmas, if we're honest, there's still that sense that things just aren't right. There's that sense that that we're still waiting for something. And what we're waiting for as believers is the second advent. We're we're preparing and we're waiting for, for Christ to come back. And so, one of the things that highlights this waiting period is that sense that things aren't quite right yet. And we all have stories like that. When, when, those, when those things, those aspects of life collide with the Christmas season, for some it can be overwhelming it might be it might be disease it might be death it might be divorce it might be dismay but we all have a story like that in fact it's what makes us wait with a hunger it's what it's what it's what makes us wait while life is grinding on us and we're looking towards the return of Christ where, where the King of Kings, is gonna, he's going to make everything right. And yet that sense of waiting, I remember as a kid, do you guys remember the Sears catalog? And when the Sears catalog would come, there was dancing and huzzas, and, and we would go through and mark everything and make out our Christmas list. In fact, this year we got the mini J.C. JCPenney's catalog. And so inside there were actually stickers in there that the little kids could peel off and stick on the items. Someone got a Christmas bonus for that one. But it was that waiting after you filled out the list and you were just waiting for the thing that wasn't yet. And that's that sense that comes with the Advent season. You see, Jesus has come. He was born in the manger. And yet, we wait for His return. I found this story from Max Lucado that highlights and describes that sense of waiting. He writes about it and it's called The Waiting Room. Max writes, so here I sit in the waiting room. The receptionist, Took my name, recorded my insurance data, and gestured a chair. Please have a seat, and we'll call you when the doctor's ready. I look around. A mother holds a sleepy baby. A fellow dressed in a suit thumbs through Time magazine. A woman with a newspaper looks at her watch, sighs, and continues the task of the hour. Waiting. The waiting room, not the examination room. That's down the hall. Not the consultation room that's on the other side of the wall. Not the treatment room. Exams, consultations, and treatments all come later. The task at hand is the name of the room, the waiting room. We in the waiting room understand our assignment to wait. We don't treat each other. I I don't ask the nurse for a stethoscope or a blood pressure cuff. I don't pull up my chair next to the woman with the newspaper and say, tell me what prescriptions you're taking. That's the nurse's job. My job is to wait. So I do. Can't say I like it. Time moves like an Alaskan glacier. The clock ticks every five minutes, not every second. Someone presses the pause button. It's life in slow-mo. You see, the Jews were and are an eschatological people, and so are we. It means that we're always looking forward towards the fulfillment of things that God has promised. You see, the Jews, from the very inception from the time that God created man and had relationship with them, from the time sin entered in and destroyed everything and all of creation fell, there has been a wait. That Adam and Eve have been waiting for the offspring who would crush the head of the serpent. That Abraham has been waiting for the son of promise and the fulfillment of what God promised through him, which is a great nation. Moses was waiting for someone who would fulfill the law. Moses, who knew God, who talked to God, who walked with God, who knew what it it was like to have God in your presence, was waiting for someone who could come and perfectly fulfill the law and thus establish the kingdom forever. David, waiting for someone who could fulfill and fill the throne perfectly forever. It's that weight. And yet in the darkest of times, and you may have come here today, I don't know your situation, but you may have come here with agony. Just waiting and hoping to hear something that would make you happy. And the message that I have for you is the same message God had for his people all the way back in the Old Testament, which is walk with him by faith. That there is no greater thing, there is no better thing than to have a right relationship with your creator. There is no better thing than to see the light of Christ, to to hope for the kingdom that will be fulfilled someday. There is no greater gift than the fact that God will come as a child and that he will be the king of kings. And yet we wait. In fact, the section of Scripture that we're going to be reading today is in Isaiah chapter 9. Verses 2 through 7. And as I read through it, I'll, I'll read it completely and then pray, and then we'll go back and tear it apart. Okay? We start in verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they're glad when they divide the spoils. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulders and the rod of his oppressor you have broken is on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, on this Advent Sunday, Lord, our hope is that You would speak. Lord, Your Word never returns void. And yet, my words constantly fall flat. And so, Lord, I pray that You would speak today, that You would preach, that You would prepare our hearts and minds for everything that You have. Because in the darkest times, the light shines and so lord we thank you and we praise you we pray these things in jesus name amen you see in this dark time historically for israel god wants his people to know and understand and to have hope and so he wants them to understand that there's a light that's coming but in order to understand the contrast there between the light and the dark you have to understand how dark this is this is dark. From Israel's perspective, there is at least the potential that all of God's covenants, all of God's promises may not be fulfilled now. And so as Isaiah is writing this, he's recounting the darkness that has infected and encompassed Israel. He talks about those who walked in darkness and those who have dwelt in darkness. And when he does that, he's using what's called a negative progression. You see, there's a progression that follows along the fallenness that we live in. And it's a warning that God gave to his people all the way back at the beginning of Psalms. And so God wanted to warn his people, and so he gave this message to David, and David spoke to the people, and he wanted them to understand what it was like to be blessed. And in order to be blessed, they have to understand what it means to be fallen. He says in chapter 1 of Psalms, in verses 1 and 2, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You see, the the negative progression that's included in that starts with walk, moves to stand, and then goes to sit. It's a, a progression of immobility. And it starts off when God's chosen people begin to walk alongside those that God calls wicked. You see, it's one thing as believers to walk alongside people in this world so that we can share the gospel with them, so that we can give counsel to them from God, so that they might receive and understand who Jesus is. It's a completely different thing when we begin to take the counsel of those who are aligned against God. And when we begin to include those things into our lives, when we we begin to live our lives based on that counsel, we begin to take the same stands that they take. And the minute we begin to take those stands, we're just one movement away from being seated, completely immobile. In fact, the way God describes this through David is that we now take the stands of the sinners and that moves us to the seat of mockers, of people who scoff, who openly scoff at God. It's like we're sitting at the head of the table going, ha, you think you're all that. And Isaiah uses a truncated version of this when he's talking to the people. He talks about people who walked in darkness. And now those who dwell, who dwelt in the deepest darkness. You see, even from the time that this was written, this was already being interpreted through a psalm psalm 107 verses 10 and 11 and i'm going to read that section for you and then i'm going to explain why it was already being interpreted that way psalm 107 verses 10 and 11 some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death prisoners in affliction and in irons For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. You see, historically, the Assyrians have already attacked the Israelites. The kingdom is separated into two different kingdoms at this point. The southern kingdom is Judah. It's only comprised of two tribes. The northern kingdom is comprised of the rest of the tribes, and it's known as Israel. And Israel was marked by bad kings, bad political alliances, and demonic worship from its inception. In the midst of this kingdom, the Assyrians attack. The Assyrians were a particularly brutal, militaristic people. They're known as the fathers of siege warfare. And we see a little bit of this when Sennacherib lays siege later on to Jerusalem. And he surrounds the entire city. And he installs a form of psychological warfare where he begins to read out and tell the people what's going to happen to them. In fact, I was reading a historical account of one of the kings of Assyria that reconquered a people group that had rebelled against Assyria. It's recorded on one of the temples in Nimrod. And the king had written that after he reconquered this city, he took the chief elders who had rebelled against Assyria and he filleted them. And he built a pillar out in front of the city, and he stretched their skins over the pillar. And some of the men he impaled on spikes on the pillar. Some of the men he entombed inside the pillar. And then after this was done as a warning for everyone, it was recorded and it was sent out through the entire kingdom so that everyone would know this is what happens when you rebel and you withstand Assyria. And so not only are the people of Israel encamped around, living in the shadow of death, but there's death from within. The the Israelites have so so been infected by sin that they're they're rotting from the inside out. In fact, the way Isaiah describes this in chapter 8, He starts in verse 19, and he describes what they've fallen to, that they're no longer listening to the counsel of God, but they're they're calling on demonic priests to come and tell them some kind of message, some kind of hope. They're they're trying to call up the dead so that they can hear something that their their itching ears want to hear. And Isaiah says this, and when they say to you inquire of the mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness." You see, the people are so infected by sin that they're rotting from the inside out. So, these are, this is the the illustration of what it means to be living in the shadow of death, to be seated in the shadow of death. And as these people are dying in their sins and trespasses, I have to read this verse to you. It's it's the next verse. It's the verse that starts off in chapter 9. It's verse 1. And I want you to hear how much God loves his people. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in latter times... He has made glorious the way by the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The first two tribal territories that were conquered in the north in Israel were Zebulun and Naphtali. Did you know that they were the first two areas to see the glory of God in Christ? Do you know what cities are in Zebulun and Naphtali? Galilee and Nazareth. In fact, in Matthew, when Matthew describes the temptation of Jesus as he's out in the wilderness, as Satan is trying to dissuade him from bringing glory to God, it says that he overcomes Satan And during that time, he finds out that John the Baptist has been brought into prison. And at that moment, he withdraws to this area, to Nazareth in Galilee. And it says that it was to fulfill this scripture. And from that moment on, he begins to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. That God so loved his people that even in this shadow of death, he says, I'm coming. I'm coming, and, and, and I will bring about things that you can't even imagine. And that's why in the next verse, he describes a light. It says that it's a great light. In fact, the, the word that's used here in the Hebrew talks about a greatness that has magnitude. It's not just bright. It's not just warm. It has heft. It has a presence. This light that is coming has embodiment. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And yet in the midst of this darkness, we we lose sight, don't we? When we're in that thick darkness, our tendency is when we go through really difficult times, the tendency is that we can at least acknowledge that my feelings are over here. And that Scripture, the righteousness of God, the truth of God's Word is over here. And what we're commanded to do in Scripture is to bend our feelings so that they come in alignment with Scripture. But what is the tendency of man that we would bend scripture to meet our feelings? And so that's why Isaiah is befuddled, he's dumbfounded by the people listening to these necromancers, these these mediums that are trying to be embodied by demonic spirits, spirits. And he goes, why would you listen to their nonsense? Why would you listen to their muttering and squeaking? Your God speaks. His word is true. It will never return void. Listen to your God, seek Him out. You people of God. But what kind of kingdom would this light exist in? He wants everybody to know that the kingdom that they were currently living in is nothing like the kingdom that is coming. Which would be of great joy and encouragement. As we look around and we see the world the way that it is, do you ever look at it and go, oh yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. There's a coming kingdom that is something we can't even imagine. And so as God was describing this to Isaiah, and thus through Isaiah to the people, he uses verses 3 through 5 to describe this coming kingdom. He says in verse 3, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as at the joy of the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoils. The yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulders and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This coming kingdom. Is one that will see supernatural multiplication and joy. And not only that, but it'll it'll experience supernatural deliverance, as in the day of Midian. And it'll be established with such vibrancy and power that war itself is destroyed. You see, God's calling the people to look backwards at what he's already done so that they can have hope for tomorrow. It's the same thing that God calls us to day after day after day. Fix our eyes on him. Remember what he has done. Lean not on your own understanding. And so that's why he talks to them about supernatural multiplication. They've already seen this. You remember in Exodus when the Hebrews were multiplying so quickly that the Pharaoh actually became afraid of them. And he he saw that they were growing and multiplying and that they were strong and so he ordered the midwives to murder every male child. And when he finds out that this isn't happening, he calls the midwives on the carpet before him. In chapter 1 of Exodus, verse 18, So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives can come to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. You see, God wanted to remind them that they've already seen supernatural multiplication like that, but this was biological multiplication. There's gonna be a day where there's a multiplication through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we see this in Acts chapter two when Peter begins to preach the gospel, and as he does this, as he explains who Jesus is and what he's done on the cross, there are 3,000 people that receive Christ in an instant. Or in chapter 6, when he's talking to the people, and he reminds them that they need to take care of widows and orphans. And as they're doing this, it says that a great number was added to them that day, and a great number of priests became believers. You see, it's one thing for believers to multiply biologically, it's another thing for the Holy Spirit to live inside you so that everywhere you go and everything you do and all of the words that you share about the glory of God become alive by the power of the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit can make people's their, their eyes open, the scales drop off their eyes and they can see and understand who Christ is so that they can become alive. Or supernatural deliverance. In, in Judges chapter 7 you remember the, the story about Gideon? Where God calls this farmer and tells him, You're gonna be the one who leads my people against the Midianites. I've heard this taught over and over at different times about getting having having a lack of faith because he he set out the fleece here and he wanted it dry, and then he set out the fleece here again and he wanted it wet and blah, 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 blah. Have you ever been in this situation? have you ever been called to follow God against a massive army who has raided your people for years? And so Gideon walks by faith. He listens to what God calls him to do, and he gathers all these people together. And as he gathers them together, he has about 32,000 men. And God goes, no, that's too many. Yeah, too many. you know, if you guys defeated the Midianites with 30,000 people, you would start to think that you did it. So what I want you to do is I want you to go and talk to everyone who has come out, and I want you to ask them, are you afraid? And if they're afraid, they can go home. And so Gideon says, okay, if you're afraid, you can go home. 22,000 men turned and leave. And so there's 10,000 men left, and so God says, you know what, it's still too many. He goes, I'll tell you what, go tell them to go get a drink of water in the stream, and those who get down on their hands and knees like dogs, send them away. The ones that drink the water from their hands, I'll use them. 300. That was all that was left. And God gives them the battle plans, and he says, I want you to divide the 300 into three companies, and I want you to give them warring implements. Do you know what the warring implements were? A trumpet, a clay pot, and a torch. How would you like to go into battle with that? And then he gives them the battle plan to go with these warring implements. He says, I want you to stick the clay pot or stick the torch inside the clay pot, and at the right moment, I want you to blow the trumpets, shatter the clay pot, and expose the torch. But the people walked by faith and did what God called them to do. And when they did this, it says that the Midianites arose and turned their swords on each other. And they fled and they were routed by God. God used it to destroy the Midianites and the Amalekites. And later on in the section, it talks about 120,000 soldiers being killed. That there will be supernatural deliverance. But all of this happens in a way so that the kingdom is, is established with such power and vibrancy that war itself is destroyed. In fact, it says that the clothing of warfare will be destroyed. Boots and, and garments rolled in blood, sprinkled with blood from the battle will be destroyed. It's one thing to take your warring implements and pound them into plow shears so that you can reuse them. It's a totally different thing to take your clothing that could be washed and burn it because you no longer want to be associated with war. I want to wear the garments of the the Prince of Peace, of the King of Kings. I want nothing to do with that old life. If you're following along in your uh, little insert, the first section, the fill-ins, waiting for the light in the dark what was true in the light is still true in the dark And number two waiting for the kingdom you'll see that it spells out fear there and usually i don't like kind of hyper simplified illustrations like this but i think this one fits You see, fear, what I want you to write out, is false evidence appearing real. You see, real fear, fear of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom. False fear, fear created by the enemy, created by the system around us, created by our flesh, is false evidence appearing real. God says, this is what is real. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. But what kind of king could bring this about? I mean, it's, it's all great to know that there's a light coming and a new kingdom. But who could do this? Who could accomplish this? What kind of power could make this happen? Isaiah describes the package that's coming. Verses 6 and 7. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see, two chapters back in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Isaiah gives the people a hint, a clue of what's going to happen and how God's going to do all of this in verse 14 in chapter says and he says therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall be called his name Emmanuel That God is going to perform a sign so that no one will miss it. There's going to be a virgin who's going to give birth, and his name's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. The child born will be God in the flesh. It's a package that no one was expecting, it's a child, an infant. And yet this child is so much more. The child bears all the rightful names of God. That he's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And yet there's one more name in this section that illustrates how God is going to accomplish all of this. It's a name that you might have missed the first time I read it. It says right at the bottom of verse 7, the zeal. Of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see Isaiah writes the name of God as a warrior. That by the power and the passion of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the Sabaoth, all of this is going to be accomplished. By no one else, by no other power, by no human, it will be done by God and his power and in his character alone. I just want to read one last section to you. It's in Revelation chapter 20, and I just want you to listen. I want you to listen to this future fulfillment of what this kingdom will be like and who this king is, who this light is. In verse 7 of chapter 20 in Revelation, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out and deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up and over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. And the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You see this light that's coming? He's going to multiply his kingdom. He's going to to use the power of his Holy Spirit to supernaturally multiply. And while he's doing that, he's going to bring deliverance. But, But deliverance in a supernatural way. I love that picture in Gideon where there's a torch inside this clay jar and a trumpet. There's going to be a moment where the trumpet sounds. And in Corinthians, we're described as a clay pot. John, when he was baptizing people, said, I baptize with water, but the one who comes after me is going to baptize with fire. The moment that the Holy Spirit came down on the disciples and they began to preach the gospel, it was little flaming tongues of fire that the Holy Spirit lives inside us. And there's going to be a moment where that trumpet blasts and this clay pot is shattered and all of the light from within that is given to us by the Holy Spirit through Christ is going to be exposed in that moment. And war is going to be destroyed and that's Advent that's the waiting but don't lose hope remember what God has done so that you can trust him for tomorrow And believe. Put your faith in the Christ, God in the flesh, who lived a sinless life, who died on the cross in our place, who was buried and rose from the dead in fulfillment of all the scriptures. Isn't it amazing that Christmas comes at the darkest time of the year on the calendar? And yet, as believers, we shine. We shine the light of Christ in, in in every word of the gospel that we speak and live. And we live by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we can come to you, Lord, that we can know you and trust you and read your word. Lord, that the truth of the gospel permeates even the darkest places. Lord, that your Holy Spirit has power that we can't even imagine to bring life and Lord, even in our preparation as the bride of Christ waiting for your return, we have nothing to boast in except for the cross of Christ. It's not by our works. Lord, it is by, it is by the grace of God alone. Lord, we love you and we thank you